Welcome to the weekly Comic Web Old Time Radio Program podcast. We sell old time radio programs, Golden Age comics in PDF format, and we have other free podcasts. Visit comicweb.com for more information or find us on Facebook and iTunes. This week we have two episodes of Frontier Fighters. The first is called The Comstock Load, and the second is on Brigham Young. Each one is about 15 minutes long. Frontier Fighters. Thrilling drama enacted by those daring men who fought and conquered the West. In 1849, Ethan and Hosea Grosh, sons of a Pennsylvania preacher, came to California by sea from Philadelphia. They failed to make more than a bare living in the Placers, and for that reason, drifted eastward across the Sierras into the Washoe District and began to mine in Gold Canyon. One day, Hosea called excitedly to his brother, Ethan. Ethan! Ethan, come over here quickly. Don't lose a minute. Make a strike, Hosea. Ethan. Ethan, look. Look at what? Don't you know what that metal is? Oh, sure. It's thin sheet lead broken up into fine pieces. Ethan, ma'am, this is pure silver. Silver? Well, let's turn some of it over. Look at the colors. Violet, blue, indigo blue. All the colors associated with pure silver ore, Ethan. Blue, black, and greenish black. I wonder what this ore will assay. It might go as high as $3,000 to the ton. If it's as pure as we think it is. Well, we'd better stake out some more claims and get a couple of sacks over to the nearest assayer's office. Looks like we've hit a 10-strike, all right. The assayer to whom they took the ore said it would show $3,500 to the ton. The next steps the Grosh brothers took to make themselves millionaires were attended by tragedy. The capitalist, who was to put up the funds, was murdered by desperados. A few days later, Hosea Grosh injured his foot with a pick. He died from blood poisoning. Ethan Grosh, in an heroic attempt to get from Johnstown to Placerville, where funds might be more abundant, became lost in a blinding four-day snowstorm. When, at last, he stumbled into a miner's camp, he was suffering from frozen feet and extreme exposure. After 12 days of delirium, the hardy pioneers, who had kept the vigil with the sick man, knew that he was dying. I... My brother, Jose, we... We found a load... It's... Uh, it's talking out of his fever, I reckon. Keeps mumbling about a rich strike somewhere. Never tells the place. $3,500 to the ton. Like any man, a billionaire. Oh, I guess he's about to for us, poor some of us and we know who he is. These two we can write his kinfolk. Tell... Tell my father I... I lived as he wanted me to. Clean. All right, your father, Ethan. <laughs> now, why don't you stop worrying and try and get some rest? Yes. Yes. I'll get some rest. Now. Fred. Oh. With Ethan Grosh died the secret of his discovery, which in reality was the first time that any man had put a pick into what was later to be the Big Bonanza. In the spring of 1859, Peter O'Reilly and Patrick McLaughlin were prospecting near the head of Six Mile Canyon, and they quite unexpectedly found a very rich vein of gold. In a few hours, the cradle showed around $300. When excitement was at its height... 
Well, it sure looks like a rich strike. He's jumping to hose friends. Maybe Riley and McLaughlin are going to be as rich as old King Midas, maybe. Oh, oh. Yeah, hold on there, man. What's all the excitement about? Somebody holding a pair meeting on my land? Sure, and is this your land, too? If so, you must be having a finger in every claim in Nevada. Now, none of your lip, Riley. Uh, we know you're too welcome, Stuck. Now, just by moose. Hey, Pancake, don't you go stirring up no fight here. I'll thank you not to call me Pancake. I got a name. Any man was too lazy to make his bread and just lives off flapjacks as Pancake to me. <laughs> <laughs> How do you run this cradle, O'Reilly? Any born fool would know the answer to that one. I run it with the water from that spring up yonder. Oh, is that so? Well, that spring is on land that I took a claim on during the winter. There goes Pancake again, outsmarting another fella. Now, listen, Pancake. This is our claim, see? It's been staked and registered. And if you wasn't a barn-rooting lazy hog instead of a man, you'd be satisfied with Gold Hill. Who are you calling a rooting lazy hog? Why, for two cents, I'd plug you both. Look out, Riley. He's pulling the gun. Here, here, now. No use acting like fools instead of men. Pancake... You got a claim to that spring, and you, Riley and McLaughlin, you got a claim to that load you're working. Why don't you go in as partners? What? Well, I wouldn't be partners with the likes of him. Pancake comes to. All right. Just try running that cradle without water and see how much gold you'll get out of that load. I know my rights, and by thunder, I'll have them. Ha <laughs> ha! Just try running that cradle without water. I'm just wondering how much gold you'll get out of my new mine. <laughs> Say, man, this ain't neither a pair nor a sideshow. If this one load is just a busting its side with gold, maybe the whole mountain is. Look, come on. Well, well, Riley, I don't know whether Pancake's bluffing or not, but I suppose if we don't cut him in, he's just liable to make a lot of trouble for us with that loud mouth of his. Ah, sure, Patrick. The worst of it isn't having him for a partner and he not doing a tap of work. But if this load turns out the way it should, it won't be called Riley Load or McLaughlin Load, but Comstock Load. In this very dramatic and unusual fashion was Comstock Load discovered. And not as a silver mine, but as a gold mine. Every miner who worked the load cursed the blue-black metal that was always found at the bottom of the cradles and which carried away their quicksilver. Soon, there were great piles of it outside of their diggings. More people came into Nevada. Crude towns sprang up with tent houses and saloons. Mount Davidson was the scene of the wildest activity as the miners pick and shovel dug into her sides. Men tired of calling the place where they ate and slept a camp and dubbed it Mount Pleasant Point. But this name gave way to another in a few days. A camp character called Old Virginia, after a night's revel, fell at the door of his cabin breaking his whiskey bottle. Rising to his knees, he waved the bottleneck around, shouting. I baptize this ground. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's it. I baptize this ground. Virginia town. The beach is the best little town in the West. The pride of Nevada, Virginia town. Hooray! 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 And someday it'll be a city, too. Mark my words, the pride of Nevada will be Virginia City. 
Within a few weeks, Virginia Town became the most important place in the Washoe District. Early in July, 1859, a California rancher by the name of Augustus Harrison visited the Washoe Mines. Poking around in the huge piles of this outcast blue-black ore, he picked up a sample that looked especially rich to him. In Grass Valley, a leading gold camp on the west slope of the Sierras, he showed this specimen to Judge James Walsh, who had it assayed. Judge, if this ore is as rich as my hunch leads me to believe... Well, it's uh, hard to say just how many hundreds of dollars of gold this ore would run to the town, or it may run a very negligible amount. These old-timers may have been pretty wise in throwing it away. Yeah, we'll soon know the worst of the best. Here comes the assayer. <laughs> well, sir, what news do you have for us? Well, pretty good news, I'd say. This ore had run you over $4,775 to the ton. Something, Jehoshaphat. $4,775 of gold to the ton? I didn't say gold, Judge Walsh. Now that you ask me, it's silver. Silver? Nearly $5,000 worth of silver to the ton? And these miners in the Washoe District are throwing it away. Sullivan, we're starting out at daybreak. Whether those miners know it or not, they've struck a mighty big bonanza. No news in the world spread more rapidly than the report of this strike. Hundreds of men poured into Nevada from all over the Rockies. But... It wasn't until the next year when the first bar of silver bullion, the first ever produced in Nevada, appeared in the windows of San Francisco banks that the flames of excitement burned at white heat. Suddenly, a new civilization sprang up in the West, and Nevada was the center of it. Silver poured out of Nevada in a seemingly never-ending stream. From Maine to the Rockies, there was but one cry, Nevada. These adventurous souls survived Indian raids, blizzards, and short rations to seek and find untold riches. Here were born the fortunes of the fairs, the Mackays, the Floods, and the Baldwins. The rush of immigration into Nevada was halted for a moment as a messenger ran into a crowded saloon in Virginia City with momentous news. News! News from the nation's capital! It's come at last! Fort Sumpner fired on! The Civil War has begun! The Civil War has begun! The Civil War has Pick and shovel right now and picking up a gun. This is going to be a long war. Old Abel want other things than men. He'll want money. Money. Say, buddy, there's enough silver in Nevada to keep the treasury of these United States full for years and years to come. The slogan of Nevada will be keep a stream of silver flowing from Virginia City to Washington, D.C. I'm setting up the drink. Everybody have one and drink to the USA and Nevada. Hey, Joe, don't put a bottle on the bar. Nevada, as a free territory and later as a state, played a most important role in the nation's destiny. And the silver which poured out of the Comstock load and other rich bonanzas helped to pay the cost of the war. For almost a quarter of a century, the silver boom continued. A boom that created bonanza kings and queens. Today, what remains of this fury that swept over the nation and centered in Nevada is a number of famous ghost towns. But because of the silver mines, Nevada is an important, prosperous state. And the nation has an accurate chronicle of the deeds of more hardy pioneers. In the truest sense, frontier fighters. 
Frontier Fighters. Dramatic recitals of the early pioneers who explored and settled the far west. One of the most noted, one of the most courageous of these was Brigham Young, successor to Joseph Smith, founder and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormons. In the jail at Carthage, Illinois, June 27, 1844, Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram have voluntarily surrendered to the authorities and await trial for charges arising from the teachings of their church. I fear, Hiram, that this is the end. Joseph, my brother, what crime did we or our followers commit that the Gentiles persecute us this way? My vision and the revelation, Hiram, of the Book of Mormon, equal in our faith with the Bible. Yet that mob outside has decreed our death. Joseph, who will be our people's temporal and spiritual leader after you're gone? God will guide our people in their choice. But my successor will be a strong man and a devout man, a man of great enterprise who will be humble before God. Look, Joseph. Look, that mob of men. They're coming close to the jail. Uh, Their faces are blackened. Yes, Hiram, I see. Uh, time draws near. Remember Paul's message to the Ephesians, Hiram. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. of the double murder of Joseph and Hiram Smith reached Brigham Young while he was in England doing missionary work. But upon hearing of Joseph Smith's death, he returned to Norville, Illinois, and was elected to succeed Joseph Smith. Persecution of the Mormons continued with unbated fury. Then, early in 1846, it was decided that the entire community would migrate to the far west. First, a party of trailblazers must prepare the way. The start was made in April. There were 143 persons in the advance party, including three women and two children. Brigham Young himself was captain. June, 1846, along the Missouri River on the nation's frontier. Glory to God, Brigham. I feel like a new man. So do I, Orson Pratt. But the hardest part of our journey is still ahead of us. Our destination lies in a valley where all will be peaceful and quiet. A valley of hope. Our promised land. Across the great plains and deserts plunged the brave group, the vanguard of an exodus which became one of the greatest events in history. Not even the rugged and forbidding Rocky Mountains could bar the way of these stalwarts, to whom suffering was something to be borne with inspiring fortitude. Then, July 21st, 1847. How much farther must we journey, Brigham, before we reach the promised land? We are spent. We hungered and thirst. Courage, men, courage. God has sustained us thus far. He will not forsake us now. Remember the words of our scripture from the Book of Mormon. There are many kingdoms, for there is no space where there is no kingdom. Remember those precious words, my brothers, for their application is to the temporal life as well as to the spiritual. He's right. Our leader is right. Let's go on to the promised land. Ah, how far have we traveled? About 1,500 miles. 
But I feel that we are very close to our destination. Where are Orson Pat and the Rasp Snow? I haven't seen them for several days. I in those mountains over yonder. I sent them there to make a survey. Careful, Snow. One false step and you'll find yourself on those rocks down there. I'll be careful, Pat. Here, give me a hand. How much higher must we climb before we get to the top of this mountain? See that bench up there, just over our heads? You mean that flat place, like a big stone tabletop? That's as near to the summit as we dare go. But once up on that bench, we can see for miles around. Want the rest of it? No. Let's keep going. Here we are, Snow. Practically on the roof of the world. In the eaves, anyway. Look, Orson, down in yonder valley. All that land and that, and that great body of water. It's our valley, our destination. Praise God. The promised land. The spearhead of the party entered the valley the same day that Snow and Pratt made their discovery. President Young and the rest of the wayfarers arrived July 24th. A site was chosen, and one of the first buildings to be erected was a fort of ten acres, built of adobe and logs. That winter, and early the next year, the rest of the emigrants arrived from winter quarters in Nebraska, where they had found asylum from their Illinois enemies. Soon there were thousands of persons in Salt Lake Valley. Food was scarce. The hunters and fur trappers in the surrounding mountains were skeptical of the success of the project. Inc. Them settlers down in the valley is going to starve to death. You're dead right, Professor. Can't grow nothing in that hole. Look at them. Plowing, digging, planting, working like the beavers are catching my traps. And like them same beavers, they're going to be catched too. I wonder what that party's doing up on what those settlers have named uh, City Creek. I see them. Carrying lumber and digging a long ditch toward the dry fields. Yes, they've been at it for weeks. More foolishness. <laughs> More useless digging and hauling. What? Why, no, it ain't. No, it ain't. Look, Presser. Look. By cracky. They're turning the course of the creek. There's mountain water running into that ditch. Why, they're going to cover their fields with that creek water. You call that foolishness? No. No, I take it all back. I swallow my words. You can't get ahead of Illinois, folks. And you see, Presser, I'm from Illinois myself. By flooding the half-baked soil of Salt Lake Valley with mountain water, Brigham Young became a pioneer in agricultural irrigation. The abundant supply of water soon made the dry, dead soil green with waving crops. Industry and perseverance transformed the desert into a garden. Then came the time to harvest the wheat, oats, corn, and other grain. Brigham! Brigham! Here I am, Heber, looking up in the sky, same as you are. What's that coming? That big black cloud, blotting out the sun. They're crickets, Heber. Millions of them. See, here are the scouts. They're attacking our wheat, our corn, our garden. Look, they're falling into the water ditches. They're choking up the flow. Unless providence intervenes, we perish. Black pestilential death, Brigham. Look, man, grasshoppers, too. It's a locust plague of the Bible, only worse. Crickets and grasshoppers. Right. Orson Pratt. Here I am, Brigham. Shoveling crickets and grasshoppers out of this ditch. Right. You send word to keep all the women indoors. Send riders to the outlying farms to keep the ditches open at all costs. All women and children indoors. All it's getting dark as night, Brigham. 
It was a thick blanket of insects between us and God's heaven. What shall we do? Do, man. Where's our faith in God? Order the church sexton and the elders to give the signal for prayer. Then down on your knees to ask God's help in this, our great time of need. Pray, everyone. Pray. For deliverance from this black insect. Lord God of hosts, thou who hast delivered thy people from our enemies and hast guided us to this place, deliver us from this plague of insects which is about to destroy the faithful of thy holy city. Amen. Amen. Brigham! Brigham! Brother Young, look! Towards the west! Towards the west! Birds! Thousands of birds! Hungry birds! Look at them catching insects in the air! What? They're seagulls! They're seagulls, all right, and mighty hungry! Just see them devour those crickets and grasshoppers! Brigham! The gulls have saved us! Birds against insects! And the birds are winning. The seagulls were sent by God. Eva, when the work of clearing the field has been done, I want all the elders called to a council. Of course, Brigham. Have you any special object? Yes. I want a law passed that from now on the seagull, that beautiful, graceful bird which has saved this valley from destruction, will be protected. And anyone who kills one of those birds will merit instant punishment. Time and providence were good to the men and women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in 1877, Brigham Young talks to John Taylor, senior apostle of the Mother Church. John, my time to move on to another mansion is near. My work will soon be finished. And a great work it has been. Well, yes. Yes, John. I am grateful for the privilege of leading our people to this beautiful valley. I am grateful for the privilege of a prolonged life so that I might see the fulfillment of so many of my dreams. I have seen colonists from our church scattered wide, settling other valleys, irrigating them, making homes. I have seen sawmills, tanneries, mercantile stores, mines brought into being and nurtured by our people. Yes, John, mine has been a full life, and I have few regrets. Utah is now a territory of the United States of America. You and the others must work now toward the culmination of that dream, John, the granting of full statehood. To our Utah. Exactly 20 years later, Brigham Young's final dream came true. January 4th, 1896, President Grover Cleveland signed an act of the United States Congress admitting Utah into the Union as the 45th state. Her great seal, typifying the progressive spirit of her people, bearing a beehive and the one word, Industry. Another stimulating chapter dedicated to those men and women to whom we owe a debt we can never repay. The Frontier Fighters. Frontier Fighters is a show about the westward expansion of the United States. 
Each episode summarizes the exciting adventures of explorers, military men, new territories, encounters with Native Americans, and much more, all told in about 15-minute segments. Let me tell you, it isn't easy to reduce the entire Lewis and Clark expedition to just 15 minutes, but the show does as well as you can expect, mixing narration, first-person storytelling, and plenty of action and drama. So if you've got a school report due tomorrow morning, it's either this or Wikipedia. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.